Our first reading this evening comes from James chapter 4, starting reading at verse 13 through to chapter 5, verse 6. Now listen, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business and make money. Why you do not even know what will happen tomorrow? What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast and brag. All such boasting is evil. Anyone then who knows the good he ought to do and doesn't do it, sins. Now listen, you rich people, weep and wail because of the misery that is coming upon you. Your wealth has rotted and moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You have hoarded wealth in the last days. Look, the wages you failed to pay the workmen who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered innocent men who are not opposing you. Our second reading is taken from James chapter 4 and a continuation, James chapter 5, sorry, and a continuation of our previous reading. And it is entitled, Patience in Suffering. Be patient then, brothers, until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop, and how patient he is for the autumn and spring rains. You too, be patient and stand firm, because the Lord's coming is near. Don't grumble against each other, brothers, or you will be judged. The judge is standing at the door. Brothers, as an example of patience in the face of suffering, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. As you know, we consider blessed those who have persevered. You have heard of Job's perseverance and have seen what the Lord finally brought about. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. Above all, my brothers, do not swear, not by heaven or by earth or by anything else. Let your yes be yes and your no be no, or you will be condemned. Is any one of you in trouble? He should pray. Is anyone happy? Let him sing songs of praise. Is any one of you sick? He should call the elders of the church to pray over him and anoint him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise him up. If he has sinned, he will be forgiven. Therefore, Confess your sins to each other 
and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. Elijah was a man just like us. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three and a half years. Again he prayed, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth produced its crops. My brothers, if one of you should wander from the truth, and someone should bring him back, remember this, whoever turns a sinner from the error of his way will save him from death and cover over a multitude of sins. Tonight we come to the end of our sermon series on the Epistle of James. In scholarly circles there are two schools of thought about James, how it's structured and put together. There are those who think that actually, as a letter, it's just a little bit random. You get a whole bundle of exhortations jumbled up together with a lot of repetition, very little coherent flow of thought or structure. The letter looks like a set of notes that require a great deal of editing to turn them into what looks and reads like a coherent whole. The only reason you know you got to the end of the letter is there are no more words to read. On the other hand, there are those who have poured over this at great length and claim that the different bits of the letter aren't related or jumbled together at all. On the contrary, a careful analysis can reveal just how carefully the letter has been constructed and put together. I've got to say that the experience of trying to prepare a sermon on the last chapter and a bit of James has settled me quite firmly in the first category. That's not to say there's no coherence to the letter. As I said, when we started to look at it, I think the recipients of the letter are Christians who are undergoing a degree of economic hardship as a direct result of their faith because they are suffering from discrimination and persecution at the hands of those who have the power and the wealth. At a macro level, all the content of James can be explained on this basis. But when you try and make sense of how it fits together, why does this bit follow that bit? To try and find some kind of logical structure to it, then you run into difficulties, at least I did. But James clearly has a lot to say. And he's more concerned that he gets everything that needs to be said down in his letter than he is with sorting it out to some kind of logical structure and order. Do you know I wonder whether if he'd known that we'd be reading it and thinking about it and preaching sermons on it 2,000 years later, he might have taken a little bit more care over how he put it together. One of the issues is the wide range of, of problems he addresses towards the end of the letter. I count no less than 12, and I'll be running through them all in a minute or two. But the way in which James seems to zoom all over the place towards the end of his letter serves to remind us that there are no aspects of our life in this world that fall outside the scope of God's concern or the boundaries of his kingdom. Everything comes under God's grace. And as I thought about this, it struck me that perhaps this closing part of James's letter might have something to teach us about prayer. I know people pray in all sorts of different ways. Some people have very structured and ordered and disciplined prayer lives. They have allotted times for prayer every day, and they fill that time very efficiently by systematically praying for all the people and issues that God has placed on their hearts. They have lists that they work through, and the time is filled. Personally, I find that my prayer life is a bit more like the end of James' letter. It is all over the place. 
Series of disconnected thoughts that jump from one subject to another, but all get bundled up together and presented to God and say, Lord, here you are, sort this out. Make sense of this. Please will you answer these prayers. So it is with this in mind that I've entitled this sermon, 12 Points for Prayer, or 12 Prayer Points, because I can imagine James's mind flitting from one point to the next point as he writes his letter, much as my mind, and maybe yours as well, jumps around when we're praying. So this sermon will serve not as a a way of structuring and ordering our prayer life. It won't won't work like that at all. But maybe as a reminder of the wide range of matters for which we can and should be praying. Because James, in writing them in his letter, has provided us with clear evidence that they are all on God's agenda. And if they're on God's agenda, they're fair game for prayer as well. So the first one, here we go. Number one, future plans. You have no business planning ahead and mapping out your future without reference to God. You don't even know what will happen tomorrow. So when you're drawing up your business plan and scheduling your itinerary around the globe, pause a moment to recognise the extent to which your life, your future, is in God's hands. One time it was standard practice in some Christian circles to put the letters DV on notice boards or in letters where future arrangements were being made. DV stands Latin for Deus Volens or Deo Volente, which both mean, in a sense, the Lord willing. All these things will happen, the Lord willing. If the Lord wills it, subject to God's go-ahead. People used to write that as a way of expressing the contingent and provisional nature of all their plans. Everything is subject to the overriding will of God and his providence. This is what we intend to do, this is what we hope to do, but at the end of the day, if God says no, none of it's going to happen. Because today we live in a relatively stable part of the world, we tend to assume that our lives are safe and predictable. But in actual fact, everything is is provisional. We are very vulnerable people. And although the Brighton Road Bulletin sets out the programme of activities for the coming week, including, let me remind you again, no evening service here next week, we're in Rygate, there are no guarantees that any of these things will happen as planned. After all, there is even an outside chance that Jesus could come back again before next Sunday, in which case all our plans and hopes evaporate into insignificance. Well, our, our plans do, our hopes don't, because that's what we're hoping for. So part of our prayer life should consist of placing our future, long-term and short-term, into the hands of God. Committing it to his will. Asking for his guidance and his gracious overruling. Praying that we would find ourselves in the right place at the right time with the right resources to do whatever he calls us to do. It's a way of consciously recognising that God is in charge of our lives today, tomorrow, this week, forever. Lord, Direct what happens to me today, this week. Give me the resources to cope with it. With the unexpected, with stuff that seems to be outside of your control. Enable me to find your presence. And all the things I'm planning to do, I commit them into your hands, leave them with you and pray for your overruling and grace to accept that, whatever it might be. Future plans, put them in God's hands where they belong. Number two, issues of poverty and injustice. It's Harvest Sunday. James castigates those rich people who exploit the poor in their employ, who deny people a living wage while they themselves live lives of decadent luxury, and that is unjust. I don't know how many people watched an Inspector Calls, that deeply disturbing dramatisation on BBC the other day. Very hard to watch. 
the disparity between the security and comfort of people who have everything and the girl whom they all unknowingly exploit. Issues of justice and poverty have been very much at the forefront of Tear Fund's agenda since 2006. Their aim has been to mobilise Christians around the world to speak as one global church and challenge the policies and practices that keep billions of people in poverty. So since 2006, more than 175 unjust policies and practices have been changed to deliver justice for poor communities. More than 75,000 churches have been envisioned, helping them to address poverty and injustice in their communities. This is vital, because when a community lifts itself out of poverty, everything changes. Poverty does more than exhaust, starve, trap and kill people. It destroys a person's sense of worth. Limits their horizons, robs people of the chance to reach their full potential. Tear Fund's call is to follow Jesus where the need is greatest and to bring new life and a new sense of worth to people. So Meseret Kumsa, a Tear Fund self-help group member in Ethiopia, says, Before us, before, in Ethiopia, you knew us for our droughts and our poverty. But now the poor are transforming this country. And poverty shall no longer be our name. We can thank God that Tear Fund is making a difference. We can pray for those who are working to make that difference real. And we can pray for those who have yet to be lifted out of the poverty that so diminishes their lives. Number three, perseverance, staying power. Those who struggle every day to earn or find enough money to feed themselves and their families need a huge amount of determination just to keep on going. James says to his readers, be patient, stand firm, because the Lord's coming is near. The pressures we face may not be life-threatening, but they're still real, and they do require reserves of patience and endurance. If you're in employment, the sense of being asked to work more and more in less and less time with fewer and fewer resources is a challenge that many people face. The demands of unreasonable managers, or having to cover for colleagues who don't pull their weight, are both dreading experiences. And for those not in employment, it can be a struggle to cope with making ends meet. Coping with long-term illness, disability or pain, maybe just growing older is hard. Or perhaps looking after someone else who requires more care and attention than we feel we can give. Yes, all these things need oceans of patience and endurance and strength and staying power. We need to be knocking on God's door for what we need to cope just with daily life. Give me what I need to get through today. Not fail those who are depending on me. To do what I need to do in your service. Number four is about our relationships with other people. Our attitudes to other people. Don't grumble, says James. God is listening to every word you say. So watch what you say and how you say it. When you get fed up with other people, when they drive you up the wall, when they wind you up and press your buttons to provoke a confrontation, boy, do you need to pray for them and pray for grace to cope with them as well. Don't let them reduce you to their level. And not getting sucked into that, into that grumbling and complaining and all that argumentation and bitterness. and All that requires sometimes superhuman resources because some people are just unreasonable, aren't they? Goodness knows they deserve grumbling about it, but not from us. Happily, we have a God who comes into that category, who provides superhuman resources. When the temptation is there to grumble about people and they really deserve grumbling about, 
ask for God's grace in all those tension-filled situations, not just to become like the people you criticise, but actually to bring grace into that situation by how you talk to them and how you talk about them. Number five, suffering. Either your own or that of other people. James seems to have in mind people whose suffering or situations just can't be changed. This is not the kind of a flick of a switch and all their problems are solved. This has been going on for months, years. The issues they face seem to be intractable. The focus of address is about enduring suffering rather than being delivered from it. It's a matter of praying for inner resources to cope where there is no prospect of relief or change. Reinhold Niebuhr's famous prayer is always worth bearing in mind in this context. God grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change. The courage to change the things I can. The wisdom to know the difference. Amen. Following Jesus doesn't give us a a get-out-of-jail-free card when it comes to suffering. Sometimes it just happens and you have to go through it. But remember that the God to whom you pray is a God of compassion and mercy who feels with you for yourself or for those for whom you pray. Jesus has been there. He is there with you and them through it all. Pray that they would be able to recognise this and draw strength from it. Number six, integrity. I don't know, I've got a clue why James is so concerned to stress the importance of not swearing by heaven or earth or anything else. Above all, he says, don't swear. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. Make your word your bond. If you say yes, mean yes and stick to it. If you say no, if you, if you want to say no, then say it and mean it. Don't say one thing and mean the other. Or say one thing and change your mind and... It is important that you are completely trustworthy in this respect. Unreliable people really wind me up. I suspect they wound James up as well. As he says that people should pay attention to this above everything else. But of course, if I look for this degree of reliability in others, I need to take care to cultivate it in myself as well. So thank you for those who've been gracious with me when I've said one thing and not delivered on it. But it should be our aim. If we say yes, then we do it. If we say no, we, we, we weigh up the options carefully. We say no, because that's what we really feel is the right thing to say. And we stick with it. Let your yes be yes, and your no be no. Let honesty be the policy in everything that you say. And the last few items James deals with quite briefly, because perhaps, perhaps like me, he's running out of time. So, are you in trouble, he asks. Pray about it pretty obvious really except so many people only use prayer as a last resort when life gets tough but if you're in trouble pour out your heart to god about it what's wrong how you feel what's happened all your guilt and your fear and your anxiety let him shoulder the burden of that alongside you and just be aware of him carrying it with you as you go into the trouble zone he will bring you through it and out the other side rely on him in prayer. Number eight, are you happy? Easily miss this when prayer gets boiled down to a long shopping list of requests. 
But hey, if you've had a good day, don't just thank God for it. Sing him a song of praise and gratitude in the shower. If God has blessed you, then return the favour by blessing him back. Thanking and praising God should always be an integral part of our prayer life. And it pays dividends in as much as counting our blessings and thanking God for them does make us happier people and it increases our overall sense of well-being as well. Professor Graham Welch of the University of London says singing has physical benefits because it is an aerobic activity. Perhaps they'll make it an Olympic sport one day, I don't know. It increases oxygenation in the bloodstream and exercises major muscle groups in the upper body, even when you're sitting down. Singing has psychological benefits because of its normally positive effect in reducing stress levels through the action of the endocrine system, which is linked to our sense of emotional well-being. So there you go. Basically, it's good for you. Singing to God is even better. Number nine, if you're not feeling very well, get the elders of the church around and get them to pray for you and anoint you with oil, in addition to going down the doctor. But yeah, it's both hand here. Nothing wrong with asking for prayer if you're not feeling very well. Sounds deceptively easy, doesn't it? But it does no harm to pray for people, as long as nobody stresses out, stra- stresses out about how and whether such prayers are answered. It's our business to pray. It's God's business to answer our prayers as he sees fit. But do ask. We're going to be celebrating communion in a few minutes tonight. We're going to do it differently tonight. You might have guessed because the layout of the sanctuary is different. There will be a period in the service where you can come and receive communion. You can come up by yourself to help yourself to a bit of bread or be served with a bit of bread or take one of the little communion cups. You can come up as a group together and share the bread amongst yourselves and pour yourself a glass. It's only grape juice, I'm afraid. But, but share that with each other as part of sharing communion together. There'll be time in the service when we can do that. You can go and receive prayer ministry from the prayer ministry team. They will be over there during that part of the service as well. And Jack and I will be over there if anybody wants prayer and the anointing with all because they're not very well or because there's a situation like prayer for from the ministers. So three options during this period of the service to come singly or in groups to the communion table to come and receive prayer over there or come and receive prayer and the anointing of oil over here. It's a time just for us, however it feels right, us to get in touch with God in that sense. Number 10, confess your sins. If we confess our sins in prayer, God is faithful and just. He forgives us our sins and cleanses us from all unrighteousness. Sorry, Lord, I've done it again. Please forgive me. Put me back on the right track again. James says, go and confess to somebody else. Not that you need absolution from anybody else but sometimes just to say to somebody else this is what I've done actually means that you are confronting it in a far more realistic way than just saying oh sorry God and kind of sweep it under the carpet to actually have to admit to another human being I've done this brings home the enormity of it shows we accept responsibility for it and sometimes we need to do that before we can really feel that we've been forgiven for it. Because if we try and hide it or justify it or pretend it wasn't our fault, then we can't really feel forgiven for something we're defending. But if we go and say, actually, you know, I've done this, I'm really sorry, will you pray for me? Get it out in the open and that can release God's forgiveness into our lives. We know we've really confronted it and acknowledged it as something for which we have been responsible and for which we seek forgiveness. But it's right to pray for the healing and forgiveness of a damaged conscience. Lord, I'm sorry. Did this? Shouldn't have done. Please forgive me. We can even pray for the weather. Elijah did. 
Prayed it wouldn't rain for three and a half years, then prayed it would rain again. Don't, don't do that, by the way. No one will welcome it if you do that. But, but do pray for the farmers who are trying to get the harvest in, sometimes fighting the weather as they do so. This has been a better year for them than many years past. Spare a thought for places in the world where there's drought. All this year, Callie and George have been asking us to pray for rain in Brazil, where at the start of the year there was a threat that the government would shut off the water supply for five days a week because the water shortage was so great. Don't think that's happened. They've had enough rain, but every week she asks us to pray for more. We tend to associate drought with places like Africa, but California, of all places, has suffered a drought for the past five years. Pray for those who are dependent upon climate to grow their crops. They'd have what they need to make a living. And lastly, number 12, pray for those who've gone off the rails. Pray that God would keep them safe. That you or somebody else would have the right words to say to them at a time when God has opened their hearts to make them receptive to what they need to hear. And never stop praying for them. Let your prayers be the link between you and them, wherever they've gone, whatever they've done, that cannot be broken. Twelve things for which we can and should be praying. Doesn't matter how you do it, doesn't matter in what order you do it, just recognise that God is concerned about all these areas in the world and in your life. Whatever it is he lays on your heart, commit it to him in prayer. Because there is nothing that you're concerned about that he isn't concerned about. Ask him to be involved for his kingdom to come. His will be done. So let's spend a moment in quiet. Just select one or two of those things for yourself or somebody else. Just place those situations in God's hands and ask for his grace to be present. Lord, all of these people or situations that have come across our minds are unresolved at the moment. That's why we're praying to you about them. Lord, would you bring the resolution for which we pray? Be at work at this moment in these coming days and weeks. And as we wait for a resolution for the situations for which we've prayed, help us to trust you. Be faithful in prayer. And play our part in doing what you call us to do. In Jesus' name. Amen.